Well, good morning, Temple Baptist. Not, not my first time here. Good to be back. This is the church that my wife grew up in. And so uh, I know many of you kind of as good friends and extended family. And I have fond, fond memories of this church. Maybe as many here as when the church was located in the south end of town. Uh, I remember spending time, I don't know how many people remember him, Pastor Kimball, uh, out on the golf course with him. And I came this close to doing a summer internship uh, with, with uh, Warren uh, under his tutelage. And who knows what, have hap- what would have happened to the trajectory of my ministry years uh, if that had happened. I'm, I'm sure it would have been good. Maybe most of my memories were chasing my wife, who was my girlfriend uh, back then. We spent time up in the, the balcony, uh, balcony uh, probably more time chatting with each other than, than listening to anything that was going on up front, but I'm sure we caught some stuff by osmosis as well. All that to say, good to be here. Thanks for having me. So my wife Sharon and I were visiting friends just a few weeks ago. They have a gorgeous backyard and a nice pool. And uh, they had arranged for their grandkids to come over, so they invited us to bring our grandkids along as well. And the kids had a fabulous time. It was one of the first really hot days of July. So they're out swimming, playing games, eating popsicles, learning how to do backflips. And as it goes with kids, after a little while, the volume of the fun they were having with each other started to go up a notch or two. And it wasn't long before the neighbor, a couple doors over, came out into their backyard and turned their music on, turned it up quite loudly at first. And then we noticed over time it was getting louder and louder and louder. And at first you're not paying attention all that much. And after a while, okay, this is a little odd. And then it dawned on us, oh, this is probably their way of grabbing our attention and saying, you and your kids are being way too loud. You You need to do something about it. And sure enough, wasn't very long before a text came from the neighbor and both our friend and that neighbor text back and forth and I'm pretty sure they remedied the situation but it was a reminder that sometimes relationships with neighbors can be difficult. Well, we were talking about this when our friend's daughter and son-in-law came to have dinner and then they were gonna pick up their kids, the grandkids of our friends and take them home. He joined the conversation and started to talk about how difficult his neighbor had been lately. He described for us a little old lady, a grouchy, cantankerous, critical-spirited old lady who it didn't matter what these other folks did, uh, the daughter and the son-in-law of our, our good friends, I guess they're our friends as well, didn't matter what sort of neighbors they were, how hard they tried, nothing satisfied this woman. She grumbled and complained about everything and gave them an extremely difficult time. The tension in this neighborly relationship escalated so much that eventually this woman called the police on this young man. She felt or she noticed that he was constantly looking over the backyard fence. She thought it was a little creepy, feeling creeped out. She called the police and basically reported him as a peeping Tom. If your name is Tom, take no offense. Well, the police came and they sat down with the lady, noticed that she's a little different, took the report. They walked next door to talk to this friend of ours and they began to snicker and laugh because they realized the problem. He's six foot nine inches. (laughs) 
There's no way he can't look over his fence. Anywhere he stands in his backyard, if he turned in the neighbor's direction, it would look like he's gawking at her. Now me, at five foot six, if I'm peeking over your fence and you see my beady little eyes, you may have a problem. But not this guy. Not at six foot nine. So, honest mistake, right? Or was it a bad call rooted in a hypercritical, judgmental spirit where one neighbor chose only to think the worst about the other rather than believing for the best and it clouded her vision and made her make a bad call. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells a little story, an absurd parable in order to warn us about the harm, the harm of a hobby of nitpicking on other people and judging other people. And we hear him talk about this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. I'll read from verse 1 down to verse 5. Jesus says there, do not judge or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your, your brother's eye. There's a good chance that Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, is the most misinterpreted and misapplied text, maybe in the entire New Testament. And the reason for that is we listen only to the first three words and then we stop listening. Do not judge. That's all we hear. And then we think a great application of that in our lives is to keep our nose out of other people's business. Pay no attention to how they're living life. Pay no attention to mistakes they're making, the harm that might cause them, the harm it might cause us, the harm it might be causing society in general. Just leave them alone. Don't bother yourself with them. Friends, Jesus here is not making a blanket statement in order to encourage indiscriminate tolerance in our world. He's not trying to encourage us to become morally indifferent. He's not trying to leave us with the impression that oh, God's not offended by anything, nor is he trying to create the impression that there is no room whatsoever for judgment. That is not what Jesus is doing here at this point. And you can tell that because it's only a few minutes later that Jesus encouraged them in verse, verse 13, just a little further on the chapter, he says, watch out for false prophets. So obviously Jesus is expecting we have the capacity to, make the to tell the difference between a good prophet and a bad prophet. He's expecting us to still discern wisely. What Jesus is doing here is calling out judgment that is shallow, self-righteous, and uncharitable towards other people. That kind of judgment is the problem. And before going very far, 
He warns us that a critical spirit can have a boomerang effect. If you persist on harshly judging other people, don't be surprised if in some way or another that harsh, that, that harsh critical spirit circles, by, circles back and bites us in the proverbial backside. With Jesus at this point, I think he's trying to convey the thought of what goes around, comes around, live by the sword, die by the sword. If you're going to harshly judge other people, what, in, in God's economy, whatever measure you use, whatever scales you use, whatever yardstick you, you use to judge other people, you can be fairly certain that you will be judged by that same standard, by that exact same measure. No wonder Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or, as Eugene Peterson renders it in the message, Lord, keep us forgiven with you and forgiving other people. So to illustrate the dangers of Judging and judging harshly, Jesus, in verse 3 of this little section, introduces us to this parable. It's a ridiculous parable. <laughs> it really is. The picture that he conjures up, he relies heavily on hyperbole. If you don't know what hyperbole is, it is exaggeration for effect. And he invites us to consider two individuals, both members of the community of faith, both struggling with their, with their eyes, the one character is bothered by a little piece of sawdust in their eye. And the word that's used for sawdust here can also be used to refer to a splinter, to a little piece of straw, anything small enough or light enough for the wind to come along, pick it up and blow it into the eye of any single one of us. A little speck of dust. The other person in the story has a bigger challenge. They're being bothered by a big log that's sticking out of their eye. And the word that's used here, I think in the NIV, it's, it's a plank. But think here more of a log or a beam because in ancient time it was used to refer to a beam that was used in construction. A beam big enough and strong enough to hold up an entire roof, the ceiling of a building. In fact, Josephus, the great ancient Jewish historian, he uses this word to refer to a, a battering ram that was used by the Romans to knock down city gates of a walled city. So we're talking something big and heavy. And as Jesus moves towards the punchline of his story, he has this second guy, the guy with a railroad tie, sticking, you know, protruding from his eye, turning to the other and saying, um, you, you know you've got a fleck of sawdust in your eye, don't you? You probably should do something about that. Ludicrous, right? Like it's a silly picture, an absolute absurd picture. But Jesus here wants to remind us that so often this is the case with judgmental people. We get all busy fussing about the microscopic problem in the life of another person when we let the gigantic things in our own life go completely unnoticed. So why do we behave that way? What motivates, what motivates this kind of harsh, critical spirit towards other people? 
Well, sometimes I think it's things as simple as it's a distraction for us. We're living bored lives, so it becomes something to fill our day with, to occupy our time with. Sport, amusement. For some of us, it has more to do with living unreflective lives. We either don't take the time or don't have the space to do the work of introspection in our life, so we go along our merry way completely oblivious to the big problems that plague our lives. Some of us notice the flaws or the mistakes in our own lives, but we do the comparison game. We look at our neighbors, we look at other family members, and we see their stuff, and they think, my stuff is insignificant. I'm not even going to bother with this thing. And we let it go unchecked. For others, we're fully aware of the faults in our own lives. We know they're a big deal. So what we do is we use all our time and energy to cast the attention off of us. In our grumbly, critical spirit and words, we get the spotlight on someone else. That way, maybe nobody will notice us. Maybe at the end of the day, it's just, it's just a case of projecting, projection. Maybe at a subconscious level, we are so dissatisfied, so unhappy, with ourselves, our own lives, the circumstances of our lives. Judging other people's becomes a form of catharsis. Gives us a chance to unload, to vent, to deal with the anger, the bitterness, the resentment, our regrets. Basically, we're sick in our lives and the way we deal with all the harsh stuff is we just vomit it on other people. They get the they get the shrapnel, I guess. Well, for those bent on using a double standard to judge other people, Jesus points out in this little section two main problems. The first deals with character. Basically, this is hypocrisy. A word that finds its origins in the world of ancient Theater. The word literally means to interpret from below. So originally, a hypocrite was, somebody, was an actor who interpreted a story, interpreted a play from beneath. From beneath what? From beneath or from below a mask that designated them as a certain character in the story. And so over time, this word hypocrisy or hypocritical has come to mean something along the lines of play acting. Pretending to be somebody or something that you are not for the intent of deceiving another person. And I think Jesus in this passage uses the word hypocritical in order to point out the fact that we are actually pretending when we judge other people. What are we pretending? We're pretending that we care about human wholeness. We don't care about our own wholeness or well-being because we're going on our merry way every day, leaving this great big railroad tie protruding from, from our eye. And we obviously don't care about other people and their wholeness because we're content simply to grumble about them, to say awful things about them, to judge them, to dismiss them, to condemn them, 
while never any point along the way lifting even our baby figure to move towards them to help them out of the thing that they're struggling with. The way that we critically speak about other people, say cutting things about them in our judging spirit, often behind their back when they're out of earshot, betrays a malignant satisfaction in our lives with human failure, human failings. Our inactivity, our willingness to lift a baby finger to help actually shows that we prefer fallenness to health and to wholeness. If the first problem is one related to character, the second one relates to competency. Uh, excuse me, if, <laughs> if you can't manage to get the log out of your own eye, how are you going to help me get this little speck out of my eye? Are, are you serious? And think about it for a second as you consider the story. If someone has a big railroad tie, a great big beam sticking out of one of their eyes, their vision is at least partially distorted. It's partially hampered. How then are you going to have eyesight that's good enough, that's well enough to enter into the delicate and intricate work of helping me get this little thing out of my eye? In fact, it makes me wonder, how did you see this little thing in the first place with that great big log in your eye? And that great big log also prevents us from getting close enough to help. Think again, just imagine this absurd, ridiculous picture, great big beam sticking out of your eye. You turn your head like this, you're gonna hit somebody along the way. People are ducking, trying to get out of the way of this beam. You actually can't get close enough to someone else to help them. And isn't that the case with hypercritical people? We've been stung by their thoughts, we've been hurt by their words, they repulse us, they repel us. We keep them at a safe distance. They're actually never able to get close enough to our lives to help us in any way. So with that as the problem, Jesus offers a solution, a simple remedy. Do your own house cleaning first. Clean your own house first before you bother yourself with anyone else's. The little pair of tweezers that you got out of the top drawer to help get that little speck out of someone else's eyes, put the tweezers down, head over to Battle Creek Equipment and rent a forklift because there's some heavy timber lifting to do in your own life, first of all. Verse five, Jesus puts it this way. Remove the log from your own eye first so that you can then, and here's the key phrase, so that you can then see clearly to get the speck out of the eye of your brother. To see clearly or seeing clearly is your ability to assess the life of another person fairly because, and accurately because the sin in your life has been dealt with, it's been removed. To see, to see clearly means gone is the compulsion to villainize another person as a way to justify yourself or to make yourself feel better about yourself. Having experienced log removal in your own life, that whole experience has, has cultivated a heart that is now humble. 
and empathetic. You don't judge quickly, but you consider the circumstances, the shoes that the other person is walking in. You try to feel what they might be feeling. From firsthand experience, you know that to seriously deal with stubborn sin, it's not an exercise for the faint of heart. It's something that requires focus and persistence, a whole pile of gentleness, and the acknowledgement at the end of the day, it's always the grace of God that needs to work in our life to change, whether it's a little thing or whether it's a big thing. With the log removed, you are now a skilled practitioner. You've arrived. Having managed, with God's help, to, to get that big beam out of your own life, you are now well-positioned, well-informed, well-equipped to help your brother and sister, your family member, your friend deal with that smaller, insignificant thing in their life. I think many of us know that ophthalmologists are eye physicians who have years of advanced training, advanced training uh, in the area of medicine uh, and surgery. Often they have 12 to 13 years of training before they can ever get licensed to practice medicine or to perform surgeries. Four years of undergrad, four years of med school, another four or five years of residencies in which they get hands-on experience under the supervision and the tutelage of somebody who's mastered the discipline of medicine, and then there are specialties. Some people want to focus on glaucoma, some on stuff that relates to the retina, to the cornea, then they go into different disciplines and kind of cross the two fields, pediatrics, neuroscience or neurology, plastic surgery, each of which require another year or two, a period that we call fellowships. All that to say there's many years of training and experience gaining closer to 15 than to 10 before someone is ready to help deal with the eye problems in someone else's life. As a doctor, that is. With this parable, I don't think Jesus is hoping to get us to just stop judging other people. I think he's using this parable to invite us into the delicate intricate work of spiritual ophthalmology. ophthalmology. The kind of work that's reserved only for those who are highly skilled and vastly experienced. Work that's reserved for those who have first allowed their characters and competencies to be transformed, to be, to be forged by by the experience of tending to their own failures and flaws, their own way of fumbling things in their life. So, the next time you find yourself, whether it's a brother or sister in the Lord, a co-follower of Jesus, whether it's a friend, a neighbor, or a family member, the next time you find yourself irritated, disturbed, even scandalized by their life, something they've said, something they've done, their attitudes, their values. Before you go any further, know, remember that you are standing, you're in a moment where you are standing at redemptive crossroads. There's a choice that lies before you. 
You can choose to judge your brother, to disparage your sister, to condemn them, just completely ignore their situation after bad-mouthing, and in doing so, forfeit your, the potential for your own move towards wholeness and their move towards wholeness. Or, next time you're really bugged by someone else and you want to kind of light up and, and let it rip, maybe accept that moment as a reminder from God, a nudge from the Holy Spirit to do your own soul work first, to tend to your own brokenness, then and only then move towards that other person in humility and gentleness and with a charitable spirit and actually say to them, how can I help? So what's it going to be, church? How's it going to be for you? And I want to leave you with that question because there's a very good chance that between the time we say amen, sing the final song, move out to the parking lot, get in our car, go to Swiss Chalet or whatever it is you do on the long weekend of the summertime, and when we lay our head down tonight, there's a very good chance that many of us here again will be tempted by the temptation to judge and disparage another. You are at a redemptive crossroads in that moment. What are you going to do? So God, for me, for my friends here this morning, in your mercy, or have mercy on us and help us. This is not easy. A critical, grumbly spirit, the tendency to harshly judge others, it just runs rampant through the community of faith. I see it in my own life. Sometimes we pass it off as joking. We slide our convictions, our feelings in with a little barb on it. Oh God, can you help us? Keep us from being that Pharisee who stands up in a public place and tries to pass themselves off as someone perfect. They do this, and they do this, and they do this well. Everything seems to be squeaky clean in our lives. Oh God, help us not to see ourselves that way. Help us to be like the man who comes and says nothing more than, Lord, have mercy on me. Be gentle, but give us a contrite heart. Help us to see ourselves for who we truly are. And when we look at others, even though their lives might be tarnished by imperfections, help us to see your image in them even if it's latent, even if it's distorted just below the surface. Remind us that those people that we are grumbling about and being harsh about are women and men that you have created in your own image and likeness, and you love them. God, if you change us in this area, perhaps we will have the capacity to reflect your goodness and your glory in the world in a way that we have been failing in. So do this good work so that our hearts are transformed, so that others receive kindness and love rather than harshness, and so that the world gets a glimpse of what your heart is really like. Generous, compassionate, merciful, and forgiving. God, you do that work in our life, and we will continue to praise you and glorify you. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.